And we're live. Nice. I'm here with... <laughs> I'm here that was with... a great intro, man. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was, I had, to, I was searching through the Zippy website trying to find the exact right zips for all of it. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was fun. Um, so I'm here with Jamie Kubas. We're doing another explaining me like I'm five on a proof for the existence of God. So, uh, Jeremy, go tell the audience who you are, what you do, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I'm Jeremy Kubas. I'm a co-host for the podcast Contra Gentiles. And, and in that, um, I also have a whole solo show on Twitter called Let's Be Rational here in the longer format, which is just the Jeremy Cuba show if you're a subscriber. Um, yeah, so that's what I guess I'm mostly doing. Fantastic. So today we're going to now, I want to put everyone listening to know, obviously, Catholic, Catholic, we're both Catholics. Yes, I'm yeah. going to ask a bunch of questions and I'm going to move into the objection period. I will take the atheist position. So Ooh, I don't nice. want anyone clipping the dumb things I'm going to be saying and posting on Twitter. I don't want that. I don't want, because I, I, I have deliberately cringe objections because the whole point of the show is I want someone who has no idea about the topic can watch it, learn about it, and then defend it by the end of the episode. So the common objections to the more scholarly objections are written down in the objections section. So uh, I don't want anybody clipping the, you know, me quoting Sam Harris and using that on Twitter. <laughs> That's not, I don't want it to be a thing. <laughs> You know somebody's going to do it anyway. It's probably going to be Jay. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get into it. What is, um, so normally when you talk about, people talk about, you know, proofs for God to say arguments or ways or proofs. What does that yeah. mean by that? Like what does it mean by, I understand what argument, what is proof for God? Right, yeah. like, what do you mean by this in the context? Yeah, that, actually that's a good question. So proof in this one is in more, it's a, it's a deductive proof. So it's going to be more close to what you mean by mathematical proofs. Mm. So, so it's not proof in the, in the way that you have, um, you know, like, what does I call them? Um, empirical proofs. It's not really about that. You can, you begin with an empirical truth that can be agreed upon, like the, the reality that, that there is at least one thing in, a mo in the world that is changing. And, and from there, you begin to deduce uh, the, the, the logical conclusion of, of, a, of a necessary being or, um, or whatever. Mm. What do you mean when you say God? Because I know that's, that's a lot of, I put, mm. you know, I saw some Hindu people using the, like, to talk about Brahma and the three phases using God when talking to Westerners. I've yes, seen yeah, yeah. some um, some very like Westernized Muslims using God instead of Allah, which is, I thought was kind of weird. Yes. And Protestants say God. I don't think when I, when I say I'm God, I don't think I'm thinking the same thing my old Protestant pastor was thinking of. So <laughs> when you say God, what do you mean no. by that? Yeah, I actually want, want to um, introduce a, just one small idea before I fully answer that, only because um, I think it's important. And th that's um, what I've noticed so far um, recently talking to a lot of people um, on Twitter, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> is that there's a lot of people that don't understand the way language really functions and so, and so you're learning about the internet for the first time like people don't know how language works yes and I, i'm like I'm, I'm truly shocked because there's a misconception the way language works is that we make this kind of made-up term and then from the made-up term we inst we instill a definition to that term and then, and then because of that that term can then in some way change or alter through time or at least a definition. And that's kind of like what it seems if I talk to an ordinary person online, that seems to be their conception. And, and it's really the reverse of the way language actually works. 
And, and so the way language works is that there's normally something in existence, right? You see an object, right? I have something like this and you see an object. And that with that object, you begin to discover what is called a definite description, which, which simply means that there are properties in which I can point out to the thing. And so the definite description or the definition comes first. And then once you define the thing, then you can put a label on it. And then the label is what we call the name or the term. Or, or, or if, you're, if you're like um, Kripke, you call that the rigid designator. And so, so whether you're a modern epistemologist or whether you're looking at ancient times, this is kind of the agreed way that language exists, right? If you talk to just somebody who's a linguist and studies language, so they understand that you encounter an object, you kind of talk about or discover its qualities, and then for, after the definition, you label it. And so when you talk about the term God, it wasn't as if we had the term God and then we imposed definition to it. It was first we discovered a definition and then we put a term to it. And so the definition that was discovered, um, if, if you go back to um, Aristotle, for example, or if we go back even, even to Socrates and Plato, you know, Socrates and Plato is a kind of a goodness itself, but Aristotle basically is the idea that you come down to a first principle of reality. And so that's where the term theos comes from. As a quiet, if anybody read um, Summa Cogitantilis in book number one, I forgot which chapter it was in book number one, Aquinas kind of spells this part out. It says, when, when they discovered the idea of the first principle, they took the, the term theoste, which was the finality of knowledge, like the, the last thing that can be known mm. um, in a hierarchical sense, not, not so much temporal sense, just yeah. in, in terms of a hierarchy, when you reach down to its essence, the, the last thing that is known, and that's called, that, that, that Greek word is theoste. And, then, and so for that principle, they call the theos. In which was translated into um, Latin as Deus, and in English we use the term God. And so, so really in the most general sense, the first principle of reality, which would be being itself, is what we call God. And so that, that's why when you look at um, Aquinas's proof, he always, he, he deduces down to a definite description, and then in the end he says, and this will we call God, or this is what we know as God. And so, so if anybody reads Aquinas, they, they always see it that way, because you're, you're, he's not trying to discover God and then define it. He's trying to find a definition of, of, of pure reality, the most mm. fundamental basis of reality. And then he labels that as God or he labels that as Deus. I've actually seen this be an issue. Some um, people not understand language work when it comes specifically like, you know, when, um, and this is what Christians call God, kind of saying at the end of the uh, arguments for, right. on the Summa. Um, there was an atheist, uh, Rationality Rules, uh, Stephen Woodford. He's a uh, atheist YouTuber, I think, out of England. Um, yeah. And he did a rebuttal to Peter Kreef's breakdown of the uh, first way. And he basically said, even if this argument was true, it doesn't get you to a guy. It gets you to an uncaused cause that causes everything. Exactly. I'm yes, like, yeah. but that's what we call God. Yes, <laughs> okay. that's what we call God. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's silly. I mean, it, it may sound silly, but it's, it's shocking to me that there are so many people Especially the atheists and 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 or, or like talking to the consensualists and everything, they all do the same thing. It's like they say, "Well, either I'm just going to redefine it this way, or, or they're saying you come down to," and then they list a definite description. It says, "But this, they're not calling God." It's like, well, it, it's come to a point now that it, it's it's forcing me to not talk about the labels anymore. It's like, why am I going to talk about it? Because the moment I say this is an argument for God, the moment that they already in their minds 
um, semantically overload that term. Mm -hmm. And so if you have not proven the entire Christian dogma, they're saying that you have not proven God's existence. They're saying all you have proven was that there was a first cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that that is, you know, that's what I'm arguing for. I'm not arguing for, I mean, it's going to take... an entire series of books then to talk about every single or something as thick as the fucking catechism to mm-hmm. talk about every other principle within a Christian faith. But yeah. in general, the argumentation for God can be applied to any theistic religion. And by theistic religion, I mean, literally the term theos, which means a first principle. So any religion that deduces a first principle, you can use these arguments for. And so in Hinduism, it's the same thing because, you know, there, there, there is um, uh, the, the, there is Brahman, the, the, there is this fundamental principles of, re, of reality that's tripartite with Vishnu, Brahma, and um, uh, shoot, I forgot the last one. Anyways, well, the, 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 it's called the Trimurti, and so they have so mm-hmm. they have this Trimurti, um, but the fundamental principle of reality is Brahman, and so it's like that is a theistic religion because mm-hmm. it posits theos, it posits a first principle, it posits mm-hmm. the end of knowledge. It's the same thing that is with Islam, and the same thing I would say it is with some of the Jewish modern um religions so quick tangent questions we talked about language and you know like you you observe something you have there was a designated that kind of stuff yeah. this is what's been interesting question to me is uh is mass like mathematics is that like an invented thing or do we discover mathematics like do you have, do you have any guesses on that one or no mathematics functions the same way because uh there, there are definite descriptions to what the quantity of these of these terms mean right mm-hmm. so when you have a, the 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 arabic symbol that we use for the number two um, that that is referring to a quantity that is greater than one and less than three, and so mm-hmm. it, it's it, it does have a definite description. So we label it as such, and then we create these symbols really yeah. to to place onto it. So even mathematics um, does the same thing. It's just yeah. that mathematics is dealing with the predication, and mm-hmm. that's what makes it unique, and that's what makes it difficult for some people mm-hmm. because you're you're taking away um, the mm-hmm. subject and you're making the predicate into a subject, and when you make mm-hmm. the predicate into a subject. Um, it, it kind of, it, it, some people's minds can't really do that that easily. Yeah, I remember I was a question I used to ask a lot of my friends, and uh, one guy was very adamant that we we create we we created mass. It was it was a human invention, yeah. and I'm like, well, we we observe things in the world, I and mean, we call those things certain things. But that's all arbitrary. I'm like, well, yeah, the words are arbitrary, but what they refer to was an actual thing in reality. Like yes, yeah, yeah, the mouth yeah. sounds that make it arbitrary, but there's you can see there's one the more one more than one and one and one less than two right over there. Yes, yeah, yeah, one yeah. less than three. You know, so it was a. It's I don't know the, the mass thing is very interesting because I think mass is a. It's like one of the last things the kind of modern like skeptic mindset actually accepts as like you know concrete. Is yes. mathematics. But there is a philosophical movement called fictionalism that says that all those things are fictional. Fictionalism? <laughs> yeah, fiction, that's what it's actually called. So mathematical principles are fictional. They say cat, like biological categories are fictional. So there's no such thing as mam- mammals because mammalia, it doesn't live in the woods, doesn't, doesn't eat sheep, you know. And so they, so they have this idea that all these things that, that are universal in, 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 its, in its understanding is similar being fictional. So yeah, it, it's a dumb movement and Unfortunately, yeah. the more schooling you get, the more stupid things you're introduced to. I only did three classes, and by the third class, the humanities professor was trying to disprove Aquinas's five ways. I'm like, yeah. you're a humanities professor in Polk County. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, you think you 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 are you are you are um, a community college humanities 101 professor. If you yeah. can actually do this, you'd be much more popular. This is my only yes. argument. <laughs> I'm not even gave the arguments. Despite who you are, what you do, I know they don't work. 
Yes. That's, yes. That's my with them. If they worked, you would not be here. So that's not yeah. my argument. <laughs> um, so uh, can we know if God exists? If he's outside of time and immaterial, how can we be expected to know if he's out there? Like how can we come to the conclusion of some right, yeah. immaterial thing? Yeah, and so I, I think in conclusion, the way that Aquinas says what you can know is what God is not, but you can know that there must by necessity be pure act. Because if there was if there was no univocal principle to reality, every particular instance of the, of reality would essentially be illusory, hmm. and 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 this um, and this actually all, all goes all the way back to the problem of change in, in reality. So when, when you look at Heraclitus and Parmenides, the both of them got it wrong because Heraclitus um, says that there is no universal principles, there is no God, there is no transcendent reality that that, that essentially thinks they're just flux and change and chaos. And so then when you look at Parmenides, his conclusion was, no, there is only God. There is only oneness of being, as, as, as he says. And this oneness of being is the only thing that is true. And everything else that we see is illusory. Hmm. And, and so the, the problem is that when you deny a state of reality that is in itself non-contingent, but just absolute um, existence in its own being, meaning that, that that to be God is to be to be so so it's self-referential in that sense. So when you when you deny the act of to be, then the particular states of being can also not be, and, and you can never really get to it logically. Hmm. And so 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 that's why with many of the modern physicists, they have to posit things such as. Um, possible universes. They have to posit a string theory or whatever, because if, the, if you deny a pure active to be, the only thing then that, that exists are potential realities. Mm -hmm. And if there's only potential realities, there is, there's an infinite amount of potentials in which reality can be, so there's an infinite amount of universes. And so you have to introduce an infinite amount of universes that are all only existing potentially to, to explain the reality of our universe that kind of only exists potentially. And so when you get deeper into some of the, um, I, I would say philosophical, they're going to say they're doing physics, but many times at this point, they're, they're, they're metaphysically, made, they're making metaphysical claims. Mm -hmm. when, when you go deeper into the ideas, they end up saying that, well, in reality, we'll, our existence is more hologramic, like it's more of a hologram than it is an actual physical thing. Because that's what ends up happening. You go back to Parmenides, essentially, or you go back to Heraclitus, where you say there's there's just chaos. Um, and so, without deducing, as as Aristotle did, a pure act of be, you're you're only left with a dichotomy of illusion, um, of this reality being an illusion, non-existent, or that this reality makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I, either you'd be a complete Nietzschean, who I would say is the only true atheist of, of the of the modern era, mm -hmm. or or you'll be a Parmenidean, where you where you deny the reality that you're existing right now. Yeah. The um on the quantum physics, like Parmenidean saying, um, I am, I'm currently working with a guy who's only here for the summer. He's an engineering student. Oh, nice. And I I have my best friend, engineering student. I can I can tolerate them more than most. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. They still have that same. They want to engage in philosophy, which is fine. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm open to anybody talking about philosophy with me. me too, yeah, yeah. And they want to say super, super stupid things. Like we're talking about philosophy, because well, you actually can't know if anything has happened because everything could be in a quantum state of flux. And so you actually can't know yeah. anything. I'm like, but you know that you can't, you, but you, hold on, you, everything's in a quantum state of flux, so you can't know that, but you know everything's in a quantum state of flux. So how do you know that? <laughs> yes. So like, yeah. what do you, how do you, what are you doing here? <laughs> Yes, yeah. And that's where they end up. That's exactly what Heraclitus literally said. He's the one who first said that everything's in change and flux. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but, but again, it's, uh, that's the only options you're left with. There's either a permitted illusion or everything change in flux so nothing can be known. Yeah. So I, I can't remember. It was, I believe it was one of those two, but this might be apocryphal. But um, one of those two, I remember, was, um, was a story about he was giving a speech in front of a bunch of Greek people. And it was, there is no difference between life and death. And someone yeah. yelled, why don't you kill yourself? And he yelled, because there's no difference. <laughs> Which <laughs> I do... <laughs> Even though he's wrong, obviously, I still think like the 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 wit of the old Greek philosophers is always entertaining. Oh, you know? definitely, yeah. Even when they're wrong, I'm just like like Zeno's a, a paradoxes. Obviously, oh, I think it's dumb, but the, the fun and he's interesting and it's fun to read him. You know? Yes, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, he he was trying to defend Parmenides. Um, <laughs> Zeno, yeah, yeah. Why should we seek to prove God's existence if belief in Him is face based? Like, why make the argument if eventually you have to just accept on faith that God is? Yeah, and so I think it's because um, I, the term faith kind of went through evolution. Uh, faith before traditionally simply meant that you're engaging your entire will towards it, uh, or, or you should say your, your entire soul. And so you have the will, appetites, and the intellect. And so part of faith is engaging the intellect to understand it. And so faith without understanding really isn't faith, that's just mere arbitrary belief. And so they're, 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 so, I, so I'll say engaging your intellect is part of what makes you human, and that is what faith is. It's coming to know things. Because, because even if we take the, the, um, the definition of, of, of knowledge as um, justified true belief, there is a sense of belief when it comes to knowledge. And so mm -hmm. you, you, can't get, you can't get away from belief or faith, but, you should, but it should be more justified than simply blind, because then, yeah. then how do you know when someone is lying to you? How do you know if a preacher or a priest or someone isn't lying to you? Um, you, you you should know it through logic. The quote my Calvinist friends he reads a, he reads his Bible every Sunday morning and text what the pastor says out of his message copy. <laughs> 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 I was he told me I'm like okay what well, what translation he goes the message I'm like nigga what are you doing? <laughs> okay so I think uh, okay, here we go last one before we kind of get into the individual arguments before we get into the arguments is there anything yeah. we should know like what are metaphysics what is you know, because it's all kinds of like metaphysical or physics-based arguments. Like what, what are metaphysics? You know, what is that? Yeah, so, so meta metaphysics is w whatever is the grounding of, of the physical, right? And, and so, so th there's many things because, um, yeah, th there's many ways you could, do, you could define it. Uh, Aristotle defined it as first, um, first philosophy. Like that, that's what his term was. And so for the most part of philosophical thinking, they call this simply first philosophy. Or, or they later call it theology because on, uh, because. First philosophy is the study of the first principle, which is theos, and so it became the study of theos, or theology, or the study of being qua being, as is also mm -hmm. was saying. And so, um, that that's what uh, metaphysics is: it is studying the first principles of reality, and and then physics obviously is studying the way that is manifested physically. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and, and so the, the, those two studies do go hand in hand. Um, as well as biological studies and everything, but that was part of natural philosophy because the natural philosophy was the way those physical properties manifest in itself through nature, through, um, uh, yeah, through whatever animals or, or stuff like that. So. Okay. First one, what is the uh, first mover argument? Because I've also heard it called the argument from change, the argument from motion, the, argument, the first mover argument. What exactly is it titled, and at least from Aquinas' or Aristotle Aquinas' uh, title for it, and what is it? Yeah, and so the, the way that that argument functions is that it begins with, with a very acceptable proposition from empiricism. And so from the empirical world, we could say that there are things that are in motion. 
And, and this is the part that a lot, a lot of atheists get wrong. They think that it's the first premise is that all things are in motion. And that's not the premise that um, Aristotle, Aristotle or Aquinas or anybody that uses the argument really um, begins with. Be, uh, I, not anybody. There are some Protestant theologians that don't understand the begin with that. But, but <laughs> traditionally, they never began with this. That there's at least one thing in motion, right? There are some things in motion. And so when so when you begin with some SRP, as the um, as that that categorical uh, pro proposition is going to be created, you say some things are in motion to some SRP, and then from some SRP, uh, he you begin to construct an argument that well, what does it mean for something to be in motion? Something to be in motion is that. Uh, um, change from a potential to an actual state of being. And this part is crucial because the issue that, you know, Parmenides, Heraclitus, and, and um, Socrates and Plato had was that they all were functioning with an understanding of change as meaning the derivation of something into nothing or from nothing into something, that there's only a state of being and non-being. And so, the, so the, if you go back to Zeno's paradox, Zeno's paradox was trying to say that um, change can never really happen is illusion because you always have a sense of nothing when it comes to change. So if you have this glass and it moves from um, point A to point B, you, it no longer is in point A in order for it to be in point B. And so the concept of the change of point A to point B, the motion of point A to point B, means that it carries along this idea of nothingness that is not in point A anymore. And as Parmenides says, um, what is nothingness? Can we define nothingness or do we only understand nothingness as the absence of something? So there is no positive definition for the term nothing. So nothing, the referent for the term nothing is literally nothing. And so it, it is an inconceivable idea to posit that there exists in the world nothing. Because to say that there is nothingness mean if there's there's nothing means that there's nothingness in existence but nothing that cannot be in existence and so nothing since nothing refers to nothing and then nothing cannot exist by definition and so if nothing cannot exist by definition and then how can the object not be in point a when it moves to point b so so his conclusion is well therefore that 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 motion never happened you can never really have that so zeno's paradox was trying to show that mathematically so what he, what he was saying is that when you move from point A to point B, you have to first move the halfway point to point C, but then to move from point A to point C, you have to move that halfway point to point D and, and to halfway point E and so on and so forth that goes on to infinity where motion never actually happens. Mm. And, and so the, the problem of change, the problem of motion, as it was traditionally called, is really this idea that any change whatsoever carries itself a state of nothingness. And since nothing refers to nothing, nothing is nothing. And so if nothing is nothing, we cannot include nothing in the context of being, in the context of existing things. And so since nothing exists, uh, so I'm sorry, since, since nothingness does not exist, and then we cannot say that that change whatsoever can exist because every change carries a sense of nothingness, right? So changing from a child to an adult means that you're no longer a child. Changing from 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 origination, maybe from the sperm or whatever, into a child means that you're long, no longer just a sperm and an egg, um, or, or or a seed to an oak tree, and so there there are these states of changes, but it carries itself nothingness, and so th this is what many of them struggle with the problem of change is because they didn't they could never reconcile 
the reality that we experience change with the logical inconsistencies of how we can ever know that change happened. So we can know that it never happened because we can never experience nothingness. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so what Aristotle, his solution was that, well, the problem here is that change is not really the derivation of nothing into something or something into nothing, but rather it is that everything that changes is already in a state of reality. So there is nothingness. We're not talking about nothingness. We're just talking about things in a state of, of reality, but they're either in a state of potency or act. Either they're in a state of actual or they're in a state of potentiality. And so when we begin to understand change in that way, it kind of opens the door for everything. I mean, th this is literally how we came up with the laws of thermodynamics, was this, was this, with this understanding of what change is. Because you know, in the law of thermodynamics, you have things like energy is neither created nor destroyed, but only transferred. Um, and so on and so forth, that, that there's such thing as potential energy and kinetic energy, where potential energy doesn't mean that there's no energy there at all, but it's in a state of potential, and then it's actualized when it's in motion, that's what kinetic energy is. And that the kinetic energy only happens when there's something else in the kinetic energy that actualizes the potential energy to go into motion. And, and so, like, a, so something cannot kineticize itself, like it requires something else in, in the kinetic energy. And, and so um, this is the same principles that, that Aristotle says, that you cannot have um, something put into a state of actuality without something else already in a state of actuality, actualizing the potential that exists already mm -hmm. in the object. And he says, this is why when we experience change, we never experience change as change into anything. It only, you only have a finite way in which things can change. And so, for example, this, uh, I'm just going to keep, keep, keep holding this glass up. So this glass can change into many things, right? I could melt it and I could change its shape. It doesn't have to be in its shape. But that already exists in the nature of what the glass is. I could also paint it red or green or purple or, or whatever. I could um, I could break it and 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 use it as as a, as an object for stabbing people. Uh, but but there's there's only a finite ways in this in the way that this can change. Mm -hmm. um, and so so it isn't an infinite change. It isn't as if this is going to become a frog at some point or a dog or a cat. It, it can't do that because that's not within inherent in its, in its nature. But it can change in a multiplicity of ways because it, the potentials already exist in its actual state of being. Mm. And so, bringing in this notion of act and potency, bringing in the, the, this understanding of potential reality, is what um, would, would really open the doors for all of this the philosophy really to to get into play. And so as the Aristotelian argument for motion goes about, it says, well, now that we understand that, we, there's two senses in which we, um, we understand this series of change. We could understand it in a sense of, um, of act and potency temporally. And so you have an object that moves in motion within time. And so, so if I had hot water in this glass and then it becomes cooled down, we could say that there's a temporal change that happened maybe from the cooling of the air onto the, onto the water and the glass that was hot and then it cooled down. And so the cooling of the air actualized the, the cooling of the, poten the, the potential cooling that existed in the hot glass. Um, and so then th th that's how we could kind of understand it, the temporal change. And then the, the other sense of change that we have is not really in, in, in temporal, but it's kind of an essential series of change. And so the essential series of change is understanding the actualization of potentiality of the way something exists in the here and now. Something that doesn't exist temporally, but if you were just to analyze this 
in its in its substance in the here and now, we could break this down from its acting potency to something more essential. And this is like the this is this is where the study of chemistry came about. So the study of chemistry was the study of object of the elements broken down um, outside of time. Like you're not looking at how it changes through time. You're looking at how objects are broken down to its fundamental um, elements. Mm. And, and so. Um, so now we have even a greater degree of understanding of that, but back then they didn't. But let's say let, let's take the modern understanding of, of, of water, right? And so you could say what are the what, what actualizes water here and now? Well, you would say it's H2O, it's the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Okay, how how, how is that? Um, and so what actualizes those atoms? Then you could either say the, uh, or, or the bonding between those atoms. And then you could talk about the subatomic particles and the structure of subatomic particles. And then you could, then you break it down to the electrons, which is one of the atomic particles. And, 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 and then you could ultimately reason down to the reality that, that even those things um, in its most fundamental sense partake in an act of to be. And that this act of to be is essentially what he calls God. This is this act of to be is what he calls the first principle of reality, because even 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 a even a subatomic particle, even an electron, is partaking in a waveform, but in the act of being itself. That anything outside of being is nothingness, and so it is still functioning within this act of to be. And so that fundamental principle is what allows any of those things to be at all. So that, that's pretty much the argument for motion. No, very good breakdown of it. Um, do I have any more? If I have any questions, I, every time I get Brian on questions, and you're going to the next part and you answer the question. Yeah, no problem. Okay, yeah, yeah. One out. Um, I think you explained that one pretty well. I don't. Uh, I don't have any questions. I do have the objections written for it later, but we'll get into those later. Um, okay. we went to the next, so I kind of picked this tree. I wanted to explain first two, or kind of like one. The um, <clears throat> the first move argument is it kind of just observable reality and uh, things change, and then explaining that and trying to figure out how that works. The second one I want to explain is the ontological argument. If yes. you could do that. So yeah, I know yeah. you like the ontological argument. I'm I'm slowly becoming a fan of it. Yes, so I yeah. I really, I only use it if I really want to be like annoying to the ACS I'm talking to. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I love the only time I use it. So well, if you can go ahead and explain what is the ontological argument. Yeah, I love the ontological <laughs> argument. I think I think what makes it more funny for me is just how um when I was trying to cover it with Grant on the podcast, how how irritated he got with it. <laughs> I would just never stop laughing about that. But the, the so the ontological argument is, it was formulated in so many different ways, right? And, and mm -hmm. I think that that's what the hardest thing about how we formulated, because from, from Anselm to Descartes, they all kind of formulated a version of the ontological argument, mm -hmm. which, I, which I find fascinating. But essentially, it's taking this understanding almost intuitively, right? Because when you, when you kind of just understand a hierarchy of being of whatsoever you will come down to a sense that there is uh that there is a, a, you, you can't say a being but you, you you could say there's a state of being at least um that itself allows my and our particular states of being to be like they're like like there has to be a grounding to something so so it's, so it's based on this sense of intuition already that okay there's a grounding to reality now, this could be like when the scientists were trying to find the boson particle. I think they kind of gave up that pursuit. But it could be something like that, where they call it the God particle, this, this state of being that is fundamental 
to all the other states of being that that exist. And so this this intuition kind of already begins that way. And so having this this sense, or as uh, as the way is formulated many times, is that you have an idea of absolute being, right? And you have this idea of absolute being, and that in order for this idea to be absolute being, it necessitates being, like it necessitates it to be, because because if it's not being, and then 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 it isn't absolute being. It isn't whatever this concept is. The part of the definition of what it means for an absolute being to be absolute is that it is. And so it is embedded within this definition of this intuition of absolute being. And that, um, and that if you have this, the, 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 the state of absolute being, um, and it is true by definition, at the denial, as Descartes kind of puts it, the denial of this absolute being this, uh, the, 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 the denial of this is the denial that even my own thinking reality um, is not thinking of it, which becomes absurd. Mm-hmm. That, that if, if I deny absolute being, basically the grounding of my existence, I deny my denial of the absolute being, which becomes completely insane. And so, so, so it's, it's similar to the, the rebuttal of um, epistemic relativism. So epistemic relativism, uh, as we all know, is, is, is to understand there is no truth. But in order to say that there is no truth, you have to deny the truth that there is no truth. And, and, so, and so it kind of, it's insane. So to say, uh, for me to deny my, to deny being itself is to, die, is, is to deny my own being and is to deny the denial of my own being. And you can't really deny the denial of your own being because you're a denying being. So therefore, there must be God. There must be being itself. And it's um, and I do think that it's fundamentally the logically strongest argument for God, because it there is no way for one to deny absolute being without denying themselves. Mm-hmm. So 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 that that's why even. Like Augustine's argument was was talking about truth itself, so it's similar to the ontological argument because he's saying that 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 truth itself by necessity um, must exist for any particular truth for me to be spoken. So therefore, and, and truth is God, and, and so therefore um, God exists. It's it's still very similar to that because when you wh- whether you're arguing in the context of truth as Augustine does, or whether you're arguing in the context of being, is that you in in every comprehension that there is a particular thing in existence if if you begin with that po- with that position that particular things exist that there is this monitor there is this computer there is me or if even if you just begin with yourself said i am a thinking thing you know um i am rest cogitas as the as um as descartes says i am a thinking thing that if you begin with the particular existence of something that that particular existence cannot is either itself the univocal reality because either it is the only thing in existence, which means that if I am if I am God, if I am the grounding of reality, then I made everything up around me, or it is the case that I am partaking of of, of the act of to be, and so for me to deny the act of to be is to deny my partaking of the act of to be, and that obviously would be absurd. And so, so that, that's why I think it is, it is the, it is the logically the strongest one 
um, out of all the arguments presented. But in many ways, it is the least convincing one for many people. You feel like you have to explain proper metaphysics and to be and a lot of other things. It's like, okay, now that we have laid all the groundwork of proper philosophy, now it will logically make sense to you. And if you yes. argue, you have to explain all of proper philosophy, it didn't make sense. Yes. And so why it's logically <laughs> true, it's like, do I want to explain all of philosophy to you right now, you know, that's yes, like all my... philosophy and basic deduction, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that you have premises and a conclusion. Um, yes. But, but when you break it down, it's such a clean, it's such a clean deduction mm-hmm. and, and, and the premise is obviously true and, and it follows and it's, and it's simple, but simple in, in, in a good sense. It, it is just, it, there, there is nothing that one can really offer to rebut it. There is no real rebuttal to that because even the, the argument for motion, uh, that one you could at least say that you don't think there's at least one thing in motion. And then fuck, mm-hmm. if you don't agree with that, you can't agree with the rest of it. But this one, you, you have to literally deny your own existence. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's why the, the, um, the ontological argument is so profound because if you deny your own existence, and then you're denying even the conversation that's happening, and you're denying your own denial of your own existence or your, your own denial of God. Mm-hmm. And, and that just becomes completely absurd. And I, and I think it's it's why it is the strongest argument for me, the singular argument also, that, that I ever need. It also seems like it has the most staying power out of any argument. Like every few years, I see on Twitter or some new thing, some new version of the argument. I mean, yes. there's a, there's an agnostic philosopher, Joe Smith. He's like twenty something, and yeah. he's formulated a new version of the ontological argument. And he's still an agnostic, but he's still formulated a new version of the argument. Yes, yeah. so kind of like it, it just, it's something about it that seems to stick. And I think it's because in, intuitively. People kind of get it, but don't want to admit yes. they get it. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's what it is. Or they, or or it's so, it's so in your face, true and obvious that they want it to be more complex. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what happens to some atheists that, that first hear it. Is that yeah? It's like well, that, that's just too. I, I remember I was discussing recently with a guy who was like, well, "Well, of course, being exists." I was like, "Well." Yes, that's, that's the fucking point. That's what we're saying. Yes, of course it does. There's a reason why that, that famous Bible verse where it says only a, um, a fool says in his, in his own heart that there is no God. It's because it is the most foolish statement that one can make. It is the most irrational, the most stupid, the most uh, you know moronic assertion to say that there is no reality that is being itself. Because you, you just then live in chaos. You live, or, or you yourself are God. I mean, that's what it would have to be. When they talk about being a brain in a vat, how do I know I'm not just a brain in a vat and I'm making everything up in your head? It's like, okay, if you are literally the grounding of all of this, then you're fucking God. <laughs> you're still positing the reality that there's a fundamental state of being that mm-hmm. is not contingent upon the particular ways to be. That it is the grounding of it, it is the univocal reality. And this univocal reality cannot be denied. The moment you deny the univocal reality, you you deny the subsequent particular realities in which it rests on. Mm. Uh, that, which rests on it, I'm sorry. And so it's just, um, yeah, it, it, it is, I think, the strongest argument logically. But unfortunately, it, it, it either goes over people's heads or it's so obvious that um, that they don't really know how to object to it. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a fun one to talk about. I think what I think some of the fun with it is that it is kind of a 
you you don't really have to point to anything outside, you know. Like you could yes. people can argue skepticism about you know chains or about material wood or about anything. This one, you really don't need anything outside of yourself. If you'd be a blind person, yes. you never yeah, experiences yeah. anything, and you could still, you know, yes. like a, a yeah. guy was locked in sin who could only say five words a year could still get the argument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and I think what I like both about Augustine's and um, and Descartes' formation is that they both just begin with yourself. It's like you don't even have to go outside of yourself. You you, you just say that what are the first things that you can know? Both Descartes and um, and and uh, and Augustine says that you begin with the idea that I exist. Mm -hmm. That is the first indubitable proposition that any of us can make. You know, because as as Descartes says, to deny your own existence is to deny the denier of your own existence. So so therefore, I have to at least admit that I exist. Like that that is the first primary indubitable um, propositions that 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 any of us can make, and that's the same thing that. Um, that Augustine says. And then it says the other ones is that, well, I exist, but the, the further is how do I exist? I exist as something that is thinking. I am a thinking thing. And so, or Augustine um, phrases it that, um, that I am aware. Uh, and so it's like either I'm a thinking thing or that I am aware, okay? Uh, as a thinking thing, then you're aware of your own existence, so you're aware of what is true. And so the, then Augustine moves further and says, well, then what is truth? And then that's how he gets into the understanding. Say, well, if I am a thinking thing, and that I am aware, and that I know that I exist, and that I know that I exist is a true claim, and then what is truth? And then truth rests upon ultimately he he deduces himself to saying that. Well, then you then then truth is an unmovable state of reality that is not contingent on me being a thinking thing, but it is what I. Um, what, 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 what I am consciously thinking of, and that that truth thing there is absolute being is God, mm. uh, or truth itself. This and is so, a, it, yeah, both of them I think are the most beautiful, the most mm. um, just the strongest argument that you don't need to bring in empirical knowledge at all. Yeah, you know, um, to get this uh, it reminds me of um, I've never read Saint Bonaventure's arguments for God. I've only read uh, Father Frederick Carbonson's um, summary of them and his history of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I, I, my understanding, of, like when I translate his summary into like modern slang, it's like a bond of his arguments. Okay. Obviously, God is God being God is self evident to the senses because we know things happen, things exist around us, and you exist. He's self evident. Here's yeah. why this would deal the internal reason for why you deny that. And that just seems very much like how we have to engage in people nowadays because, like, you know, it's, it's kind of self evident. Most it's, it's really it is self evident. It is. Give me, yes, yeah. give me 30 seconds to make another drink. I'll be right back. I'm, yeah. I'm going to edit this little part out when I upload it. Okay, cool. I'm going to get some water, too. Sounds Okay, and I'm back. Vodka Red Bull number two. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's like 11 o'clock here, and I had an exhausting day at work. I'm like, I need Red Bull. I almost did. Yeah, yeah. I gotta have a little bit of vodka. It's <laughs> gonna be great. Beautiful, man. <laughs> okay, last argument. Uh, what is the argument from final causality? 
because when, when uh, modern people break it down, it sounds very much like the Protestant argument of like intelligent design. But I don't, oh, okay, yes. It doesn't really my read it doesn't sound like the argument from intelligent design, but it gets kind of conflated with that. So how what is it and how? Well, is it so like, so I, I'm sorry, I guess sometimes I can confuse with some of these labels. Is that the one where he talks about the arrow directed towards its? Yes. Ball? Okay, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, so that one that one's an interesting one, and so um. This is also a lot of other people's favorites. I think because it's it's also really simple. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's yes, yeah, yeah. And I do like this one as well. And so yeah, the, the argument from from final causality is is it's taking the if anybody doesn't know with Aristotelian metaphysics, it's taking the fourth um, cause within the within any particular thing that's existing. And it says that when you have a a thing that is existing, it has a purpose because it has a teleology and it's so everything that's existing has a direction where it's going um, whether whether it's gravity or whether it's like growth uh, you know when you when you get a woman pregnant you're not really thinking to yourself oh my gosh this is going to be a chicken like you know it's going to be human <laughs> right? that everything has a direction everything um has uh, what's understood in modern philosophy called intentionality the, the, there, there's an intentionality to existence, which, which is funny because, I mean, I, I don't mean to go on a side tangent, but many modern philosophers agree with intentionality, but then they want to disagree with this argument, which is, which is, which is yeah. and so, um, so basically with sensory intentionality that the world, since it has final causation, is truly intelligible, is that the reason why we can make predictions, the reason why it's intelligible is because it functions um, towards an intentional direction. And, and because it functions towards intentional direction, we can always then um, determine what can happen, or at least predict with 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 certain degree of certainty of what can happen if you do if you do a certain action. Mm-hmm. And so, since there is a, 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 a sense of inten- intentionality, it's saying that well, since everything is directed towards a final cause, it's normally not a final cause of nothing, but that this final cause of reality is again a fundamental state of being which is being itself and so therefore there is a fundamental state of being and this is what we call god and so it's because things are always directed towards something and that the something is not just it's not arbitrary nor is it chaotic it's always it's it's always directed towards a first principle whether it's the maximum of hotness or the maximum um direction of whatever there is a sense of of direction that that, that that an option goes and that's where he says the maximum being is being itself so therefore god is very simple i like it and i like the fact that i've seen some modern versions of i think it was um i think it was i might be getting a name wrong but i think it was father i think it was, I think it was father joseph white the uh, okay. dominican who teaches at the yeah. uh, vatican and sings in my favorite band hibbley thomas which is the weirdest <laughs> <laughs> like i have i have his book on christology and i'm like this guy sings hibbley music for fun that's awesome <laughs> It's very weird, but it's also he's also a great singer, beautiful voice. Um, yeah, I, I could be mistaken. I think it was him who made the argument, kind of put it into more scientific terms, where it's like, well, what is H2O? What is these things that hold these molecules together in this way? It has this yeah. function holding this way, and so it has this function, it has this, this towards uh, this teleology. And so it's using that to kind of explain the consistency oh, right. of science around us, you know, the yes, consistency yeah. of the physical world in a teleological format. And then it's okay, well, if everything is consistently the same yesterday, today, and we can predict tomorrow based on previous events, then we could say it's all directed towards the end, which I really like. Because then I talked to a lot of atheists who now like, you know, only like scientists. And so they're able to use yeah. uh, a scientific example of the consistency of science pointing to a, a final cause, that being God, I think is just phenomenal. It is, yes, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's, it's, it's strange to me that 
that with some of these uh, arguments that really does coincide well with her like scientific understanding of reality, mm -hmm. why they still want to deny it. At that point, it just seems willful. It's like, yeah. I, I don't see how you can really deny them. It, it seems obvious to me that if you think that the world's intelligible and you think that there's a direction that things go, that you're not surprised that when a woman gets pregnant, a human being comes out. Um, yeah. And then you have, you kind of have to accept that it it is always geared towards well, the, the, the human the human empiricists would be like well you can't actually notice them like saw a great meme and it was a uh, Annie saying like the sun will come out tomorrow and it was human yeah. saying you can't know that yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you can't know that I mean, my, my professor kept saying what if it's a little leprechaun running through the ceiling and, and switching the light on whenever you flick it on I was like what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I'd walk out of the classroom. I, I walked out yeah. for less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've accepted I would, unless I could find a really good school, I would never probably get a degree in something. Oh, I, yeah, I, I know. I, last time I went to school, I don't know if I told the story on the podcast or not, but I'm actually not allowed back on my uh, the local college campus because I got uh, I got in trouble for uh, the cops were looking for me. I made a joke about a school shooting. <laughs> <laughs> like they they have the they have the worst staff ever. And I was complaining on, I didn't know the camera was on for the analog test. Yeah. And I was complaining and I said, if the staff was so scared of school suitors, they'd treat their students nicer. <laughs> I'm not wrong. Obviously, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but they yeah. took it as a sweat. And I, I supposed to be with the dean. And I never did. And so I'm technically, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I'm technically not allowed back on campus. So I meet with the dean. Yeah. Yeah. So, Damn. Yeah. I, I can't no. imagine going to college nowadays. I mean, uh, at least in my generation, we still were able to say shit. I mean, it, 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 it's it's funny to me because it's like the the liberal world changed so dramatically from the '90s and early 2000s. Like the mm. liberal world in back then was to was to be politically incorrect. Like yeah. Bill Maher literally had a show called Politically Incorrect. You ever watched Boston um, Legal? I've never Boston seen a more Legal. politically incorrect show. Yes. Yeah, it's hilarious. It was actually the conservatives back in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up that was um, that was very anti um, being offensive. Like, mm -hmm. like there, there were a lot of the evangelical right from that era. Kind the of Pearl and Christian moms. Yes, yeah. But they were the ones that didn't want offensive things. They were the ones that were railing against, you know, uh, music with too much cuss words or, or, or saying the N-word too much. There was like all these other... Um, it was really the conservatives that were against that. It was the conservatives that, that instituted, for example, parental advisor stickers on, mm -hmm. on CDs. Nobody buys CDs anymore. But um, they're, they're the ones, ones that put. They're the ones who uh, nearly ruined comic books with their yes, uh, are, yeah. the comics code of America nonsense. Yep. Yeah. They're the ones that put fucking ratings on TV. There should not be a rating. It's like, was a TVM or whatever for mature? It's like, what the fuck is that? That never existed when I was growing up. But they're the ones that did it. And so it was like, when you were on campus back then, um, it, it was just a cesspool of people saying offensive things. And it was almost expected. It was like, you're going on campus in order to kind of learn new ideas. And so you're going to say things that are not conventional, that are kind of offensive, and um, but they're, they're worth talking about. Mm. Now it's like, it's the complete reverse. It's like, I can't imagine, even for me being a professor, I have to like watch my tongue a lot. And, and But as a student, I really can't imagine going there and not being able to talk about yeah, but now on college campuses, if you say the word rape, you probably get jumped. Like, oh my gosh, she's a rapist. So if you say the name Hitler, I remember one time I talked about how um, it, it was in college the first time I talked about how much I disliked Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. <laughs> but yeah, I, can, I, I really can't imagine. I'll, I'll get kicked out. 
I, I got in trouble in the uh, discussing groups. They, they, they forced you to communicate with other students in the online classes. Yeah. And uh, I always was against it. I was in the bare minimum because I don't want I, to I, – I saw their posts. Why would I want to talk to them? Yeah. Um, but then the, um, the question was, should free speech be allowed on college campuses? Yeah. And this one girl answered saying, no, you do not have the right to offend me with your ideas on, my, on campus. And I commented, your inability to hear new ideas offends me. You should not be allowed on college campus. Yeah. <laughs> and I got in trouble for that because apparently I swear in the student not to come to school tomorrow, apparently, was the teacher's <laughs> interpretation. <laughs> it was... It was the weirdest like six to seven months of my life doing those classes. It was so weird. Oh, yeah. No, I I don't know how anybody can do it now. Anybody that has any kind of sense, yeah. I, I think we we all would just be expelled probably. Yeah. Well, I think I think every every parent I know like tells their kids about school is like you're not there to stand up for your ideas. You're just there to get the grade and get the job. Yeah. That's very like the American practical mindset. I'm like, but I'm not gonna. Are you, you want me just to see you and hear lies? I'm not going to sit there and listen to lies. Yeah. What do you mean? Have to sit there and accept lies? What's wrong with you? No. Yeah, no, no, I agree. It's like no, you should be there to learn. That, that was the process, and uh, and like to test your ideas and, and see whether you're. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it I had a fun time. You know, it, it's it's like there are a lot of things that pissed me off about it, but overall, I would say I had a fun time. I, I remember on the podcast when I told the story of how I got in trouble for writing the article on a newspaper that Catholic schools should not be part of the ally program with the gays and everything. And it, and I didn't get kicked out for that. that. That was a very, when I reflect on it nowadays, people would have, would like really, whew, if they think some of the things I say now are offensive, that, that was a very harsh paper. It was a very harsh <laughs> paper about me calling a degenerate, me calling everything that there's no way I could get a job now if somebody like exposed that, that article. It, it, I'll be dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, Different times. It's it's weird. Yeah. Thankfully, you can be anonymous on Twitter and do whatever you want. Really, nowadays, almost anything. Know, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I know a guy. He's a he's a white guy with a black profile pic, just so we can say the N word with impunity. Yeah. Beautiful. It's <laughs> exactly what you yeah. need to be doing. I yes, want every yeah. I want every white wing Twitter guy to have a black profile pic for Martin Luther King. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I also think that the white people just need to be like fucking proud to be white. I don't understand why. Being proud to be white is just understood as racist. Like, well, I'm black, I could be like, I'm black and proud. I may be me being a Latino, I could say I'm a proud Latino. And then a white guy says, I'm a proud white man. So, like, oh my gosh, she's a white nationalist. She's whatever. It's like, so what the fuck? Well, you, you can't be proud of your race. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything really race in general. There's not much to be proud about. Everybody has good points and mm -hmm. shitty points. But if somebody was, it wouldn't bother me. If somebody says, well, I'm proud that my heritage, you know, did great music like Beethoven mm -hmm. or something. It's like, well, yeah, that, that is pretty awesome. Yeah. Beethoven was actually black. I don't know if you know that or not. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was actually a black woman. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, I, yeah. I was I was talking to one of my um I, I can't stand uh I don't even know who's listening, but I can't stand Indian people. <laughs> like yeah, this, yeah. I, I I can't stand uh, and I was making jokes about it and my which friend, one, daughter feather. Hmm? Daughter feather. Which which kind of Indian are you talking about? Any any of them, all of them. No, like the <laughs> Native Americans or like the Oh no, the, the, the dots. The, the, oh, the, okay, the elephant jockeys, yeah. yeah. as I call them. It's, 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 someone tweeted the other day, like, there's no good slurs for Indians. And I'm like, what do you mean? There's so many great ones. 7-Elevens, yeah. come again, Bonneheads, Gandhis. And they're everywhere in the East Coast. When, when I lived in PA, man, I, I I was shocked how many Indian people were there, man. They like they owned these um gas stations and all that <laughs> shit. 
it was pretty that's yeah, pretty interesting yeah, I got anyways. yeah um so also, I was talking to this guy, making these jokes, and my liberal friend did the eye roll and the smugly saying, well, I can't imagine hating someone for the color of their skin. I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's skin color is why the A's, why Japanese hate Koreans so much. It's all skin color. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, when he, like, I, I, I kind of got mad. I was like, you, you are more racist than I am. You reduced their entire heritage, culture, and everything to skin color. Yes, yeah. That's more racist than me. I actually of know course, Indian yes. culture. Yes. <laughs> No, sometimes some races are just incompatible in terms of their personality and their accent. Their accents can be annoying, the way they smell. I mean, why why do we have to like all of them? I mean, in reality, it's like there, there's there, there's cultures that, that I just don't really you don't really don't care for. And yeah. I don't think we should be forced to really care for them. It's like, no, you if if you want to hang out with your kind of people. And yeah. I'm sorry, but heritage plays a huge role in it. You have the same genetic background. You have a same, a similar outlook in life. Doesn't mean you can't be friends with somebody from from your yeah. But a lot of times it's easier when when you find your like people. That's why people segregate themselves. You have black neighborhoods. You have Latino neighborhoods. You have white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But we made it seem like it is wrong, especially only when white people do it. If there's a black neighborhood, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. There's just people want to hang out with brothers, you know. They, they don't want to hang out with themselves. So, okay, well, yeah. Why, why can't white guys do the same thing? What if white guys like to stand around a barbecue while they're barbecuing with their shorts on and and, and talk shit, mm -hmm. and drink beer? That is what they do. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, why do that? If you're a Latino, you want to be doing that while dancing and maybe fucking. It's like let 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 each one of them do. Each one of our races do what we kind of like to do. And if you want to enjoy the other one, go ahead. Go visit your white friend or go visit your black friend or go visit your, your Latino friend. But it's it's like if you're more comfortable in a certain culture that you're genetically predispositioned mm -hmm. towards, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong for anybody to say, well, I want to partake with those type of people for the majority of my day. Because yeah. I, I I don't leave their stress. I don't feel like I have to tiptoe around things. I can mm -hmm. just be myself and I could talk about things that we could relate to. Yeah. And and that's um that's yeah. the that's the weird thing with modern liberalism. It's like they will bring up culture and all these different things and you know, celebrating or demonizing one ways, but the moment you bring it up and say, Well, I don't like them because of this culture, you know. Yeah, like yeah. I say I just like I, I, I got just go with the Jewish example. You know, some yeah. of the stuff they say about Jesus in the town and in, in their in the books is is ridiculous. Obviously, yes. you know, <laughs> like, well, I read one of them was like Jesus city is Jesus Jesus is wadi in hell in a pot of semen. Obviously, that's just disgusting. <laughs> That's disgusting, we, obviously. Yes, that is, yes. But if I say that I dislike them for their religion, I'm anti-Semite. It's like, well, no, I, I can dislike a religion. You dislike my of religion. Course. Yes, yeah. <laughs> man, Catholics. It's like, anybody yeah. shit on the Catholics. Why can't I shit on the fucking it's, Jewish it's religion? It's the last acceptable bigotry. If you, uh, what was that? It there's, is, yeah. There's some great book on that title when the guy was like, uh, anti-Gasaurism is, is the intellectual's anti-Semitism. Yes. <laughs> like, that's, a, that's a great line. Yeah, it is. And, and they all hate Catholics equally. You talk to yeah. a Jew, an atheist, a uh, Mohammedan. Yeah, it's, they, uh, they hate us because they ain't us, you know. I know, yes. Yeah, they hate the truth. That's what it is. <laughs> Let's move into the objection phase. This is going to be fun. Yes. Um, okay, so objection to the first mover argument. If God is the cause of motion in all things, then what is the, what is the cause of motion in God? Like what caused God? Yes, I've heard that many times. It's so, <laughs> they're so gonna hard. be cringe. They're gonna be cringe for the most part. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> the reason is because obviously God is not a thing. We're not talking about a particular thing in motion. We're talking about a state of pure act that is non-contingent, that is not, it ha has no potentiality for it to be in motion. And so that's, um, because if you do, and then we're not talking about first principle. If you say, well, there's this big giant thing in the universe that kind of put things in motion, but that itself has potentiality, was that that's still not God. It doesn't matter how big the thing is. It doesn't matter everything. You're still talking about something of potentiality. He, he deduced down to this to a state of being that has no potentiality at all. So thusly, no motion. If God is actualizing every change, is he not actualizing the actions when we sin? How does this argument not end up in the determinist view, where if God is actualizing all of our changes, how do we and it's all you know cause and effect and actualization? How do we not have how do we have free will? How does this not end up in a determinist view where he actualizes our sins? Okay, so you're, so you're saying that if if God is the pure actualizer of all things, and then He is actualizing, so basically everything then is already determined by God. Yeah, it's determinist. Yeah, there, there's determinism. Um, that's actually a pretty good objection. Uh, the, the thing is that when you say that God is the grounding of all reality, and and it's always behind everything within existence, it you can't say that God, through being absolute knowledge, already knows what will be. I, I guess that that is, it is a question that um, even Aquinas um, tackles much later, because he does have a, he does have a, a, a semi, um, what is that, doctrine of uh, pre, um, what is that? Predetermination. Uh, yeah. um, oh. Predestination. Uh, predestination, yeah. Yeah, he, he does have a sense of predestination that says that God does know all things that will be mm -hmm. um, because he, God is knowledge, knowledge itself and that there is no finitude to what God knows. And so um, and so there is a sense of pre, predestination and determinism to reality, but that is not something that we ourselves experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, it, it's it's kind of, it's kind of moot in the context of our own phenomenological understanding being of reality. And it doesn't negate the reality of our free will because you're not saying that, that um, God is making the decisions for us. We are still making our decisions as temporal beings in the context of time, even if it is, even if our, of our reality is being actualized and held together by God himself. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, you know, it, it doesn't really eliminate that, at least not phenomenologically. You might, you might make a case that, you know, as, don't mean, don't mean to bring Kant up, but, um, but, but Kant, when he separates the noumenal world and phenomenological world, to say that in the noumenal world, um, all things are already determined, but it is something that we can never know. Um, and so in terms of our knowledge, in terms of our actions in this world, um, no, it, it, it is not determined, but ultimately, numinally, if you want to put it that way, or yes, there is a sense of predestination to reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I personally, um, how to put it, I don't like the objection, but no, obviously, I don't agree with the objection, but I do like yeah. the objection more than others because it actually does accept the premises and it engages on those arguments. You know, it doesn't just it does, sort yes. of hand wave away or step back behind the argument. Actually, okay, here's what you're saying, let me engage that and ask this next follow up question. You don't really get the atheist arguments that actually engage with the argument. So I was when that's I found true. it, I was like, "Oh, that's actually that's a good one. Let me think about that for a minute." Yes, yeah, so yeah. Happy to find it. And yeah. I got it from, um, Ben Watkins, real atheology on Twitter. Got it from him. He um he can be very cringe on Twitter, but if you ever get a chance to watch his debates with like Father Gregory Pine, very friendly and actually does engage in the arguments rather than just you know. Ooh, what's his name? 
uh, Ben Watkins of a wheel AC. Oh, I, I have watched him actually. Yeah, no, he, I have watched. Him. He's good. He's 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 very he's a Hume guy, but he still he seems to actually engage the argument. So I can respect from a you know a, a cosmic skeptic Sam Harris. Right, they don't yeah. really engage. You know, he actually engages, so I can respect that at least. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ontological argument objection. All knowledge begins with the senses, as is stated by Aristotle. And since the ontological argument requires only the mind and zero empirical evidence, it seems foolish to apply logic and existence to purely imagined things. How do we go from an argument existing solely in the mind to proving a thing outside of the mind without incorporating any empirical evidence into the argument? This is kind of a, a paraphrase of Hume's objection to the ontological argument. Right, yeah, yeah. So you're saying that since the, since the ontological argument mostly deals with the concepts of the mind, how do you impose that to outside of the mind? Yeah. Um, because I, you don't, you don't really have to, I guess. I mean, if you begin with your, with your own existence, you just have to show that within your own existence that you are resting upon a univocal state of being. And that, and then that that univocal state of being can be applicable to all all existence. But but the way that the argument functions, as you begin with the self, you begin with you as a thinking thing, and then from the thinking thing, you can deduce down to whether it's the Augustinian truth itself, or whether it is um, the, the Cartesian um, absolute being, or the Anselm's sense of um, a perfect being. Um, regardless of how you which one of those kind of introductions you 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 formulate the argument um it, it isn't just a concept in the mind it's it's a concept that is necessary for your mind to be at all so so I, it's it's hard for me to really comprehend this um this objection i guess i'm i'm trying to get to it um because it, it almost goes back to what we were talking in the beginning that that many of these people don't understand the way language functions. It isn't as if we just fabricated a term and a definition in our mind and then say, by definition, this is true because we fabricated a meaning. It's more that you you acknowledge a reality and we create a, a definite description for that reality, which is particular things existing and resting upon an act of being, and that from there you call it God, and then we we can't escape that deduction because our particular existence is necessary for me to even try to escape it yeah and that, so, that yeah. seems like the main re the main reason most ACs, i think when i see them like engage the ontological argument is mm -hmm. they do kind of misunderstand that language that you mentioned where it's like they think we are inventing the concept and then trying to prove the concept based on inventing the concept instead of observing right. it yeah. and then labeling it and then deducing from there the answer so that, that, that i was a kind of objecting to it was like you're just imagining things like i can create okay the greatest possible island therefore the greatest possible island we benefit it actually existed therefore it exists it doesn't exist, therefore it does not exist. And so well, that's not the same thing. Like we're not we're not observing the greatest possible eye, we're observing you know act to be, you know. So there's a yes, yes, yeah. the misunderstanding of language really played a role in the common update AC subjections to the argument. Yes, yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh two more. Things don't naturally have teleology. People and animals choose their own ends, whether through instinct or free will. We impart teleology onto the things we create. So this argument creates something like teleology and final ends, and then tries to use those ends to justify belief in God. This is mm -hmm. the uh, Ayn Rand objection to the fifth yeah. way. Yeah, the teleology doesn't exist. That was the dumbest part of that book. Yeah. <laughs> I read that, and I'm just like, what the fuck did he just say? <laughs> like, what do you mean teleology doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, if, if one thinks a teleology doesn't exist, and then there, there is no, um, fuck. I mean, there's, there's nothing that you could say that anything has an actual purpose or function, I guess. And if you don't believe anything has a function or purpose, I, I definitely don't want you to do anything. You know? I mean, if I'm suffering from cardiac arrest and you're like, oh my gosh, what is the purpose of the heart? I'm like, can you, can you get away from me? <laughs> you're too stupid to function. <laughs> or you're like, you know, you look at a kid with teeth and you're like, oh my gosh, the teeth have a function? I don't know what's supposed to do. I mean, you'll just you'll die never eating. I, I, I don't <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know how one can truly make that claim in in, in any kind of seriousness. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's too obvious. Things have functions. We look at something, and it functions a certain way. Um, and since it functions a certain way, you could say, yeah, that's its function. You know, yeah. if you, if you don't know what the point of your eyes are, uh, then okay, or your ears, or your mouth, it's just whatever. You're, well, for Lance's case, I mean, she, she definitely knew what she was for. Yeah. <laughs> she definitely knew what that was for. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I remember reading that when I first read What's Your, uh, What's Your Selflessness, and I remember just reading it several times, like, I must have missed a sentence. I must have missed something, because yeah. like, I actually I actually like a lot of Rand. Like, I like her fixes. Yeah. I like, I saw her epistemology that wasn't terrible. I saw her like um, I, I listened to Leonard Peikoff's like ten part lecture series, introduction mm -hmm. to philosophy, and I actually started starting point like okay, beginning of philosophy, A is A, things are. <laughs> I'm like yes, okay, yeah, that, yeah. that's that's a good starting point, and he yes, also he yeah. sounds like Tom Hanks, so that was kind of funny, <laughs> and so. I actually like some of objectivism, but I, I was as before I really got into Aristotle, and I'm like oh. He's much better. Yeah, he's a man. It's more complete, some more complete um, formation of those ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. No. No, I guess I'll agree with you there. But yeah, that, that objection just seems kind of dumb to me. I, I don't. Whenever somebody says that they want to reject, because there's a lot of people who are ignorant of of Aristotle's four causes, so there's mm -hmm. a lot of people ignorant of it. But normally, when I explain it to them, though, that makes sense. Yeah. But when somebody wants to deny, was like, well, no, there's no function, there's no purpose, and things are well, then. Fuck, I, how are you walking? <laughs> you don't think there's a function to your legs? Mm -hmm. There's no function there. You just made it up. It's a man made function. Your legs are now for walking. Yeah. So you just, you know, just don't do anything. From, from my experience, those who reject teleology often misunderstand it. And they think it only means, like, in the strictest sense, it has to be for this. But right. it's like the legs are for, they would say, like, I quote a friend of mine, well, if the thing, everything has teleology, then the legs are made for walking. Therefore, they are not made for kicking. No, no, like, no, I mean, obviously, no. things you have multiple functions. Yeah, I can talk. You know, and the, I leg is not, the leg is not made to fly. Yeah. You know, there are things that are limited to its function. But yeah, yeah, it's like walking, you could kick, you could pick things up, you could yeah. drag it, you could, you could dance. jump. You could do you lots could of jump. things. Yes, yeah. many things. But you understand there's limits to it because there's limits to teleology. There's limits to function of things. Yeah. I'm just like the heart can be food. You know, I could rip somebody's heart out and cook it and eat it. It's mostly tissue. Um, so yeah, but again, it, it's, it, can't, it can't be a frog. You know, it doesn't have the same function as a frog, and so or your brain—it's not a thinking mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's 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 dumb. I I don't I don't understand how one can just listen to Aristotle's four causes and his and his predicables and then be like, yeah. well, well, those those aren't real. Yeah. Okay. It might be. This might be a weird sentence, but like of all the causes, I think teleology is like the most interesting one. 
It's, it's, it's interesting. It's all fun, and I, I, I've started using like teleology and like I see lots of Christians about men's ends, man's end is God, and he's gonna have yeah. to explain. Like I've talked to a lot of Protestants about saying because I just started using teleology to explain. Okay, well here we are made for this, therefore we should be doing it this, this, and this because we are made yeah. for those things. And yeah. they kind of like, oh, that actually does make sense. I'm like, oh, cool, thank you. Yes, of course. Yes. I went, uh, I've been going through Ed Fazer's metaphysics, and then I want to uh, nice. metaphysics. I really want to get to his Aristotle's revenge, his like you know, using the Aristotelian yeah. metaphysics to fix science. I yeah, really want to get to that one because it sounds incredible, but I haven't got to yeah. it yet. Yeah. Hopefully, this year, yeah, yeah. You know, when Phaser when is on philosophy and theology, he's brilliant. When he talks mm -hmm. politics, I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's so boring, it's, it's cringe too. Sometimes, but <laughs> oh, just stop, man. Well, this week, I don't, I don't, yeah, he came to like he he went to the Mises Institute. Like he went to the um like liber like he's like a libertarian guy before. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Actually. And a lot of people, yeah, he 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 went to the Mises Institute. He read Rothbard a whole lot. He actually yeah got a multiple debates with Institute guys. He said Rothbard was a bad philosopher, and so he got yeah. into a lot of debates with the Institute guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like the people who normally come out of libertarianism go way farther to the right, you know. Yes. Yeah. And so he kind of came out of it and went. Not leftward, but more left to some of the good libertarian people. And it was very yeah, weird. Yeah. It's like, well, you should be like, you know, Lou Walker is more right wing than him, and Lou Walker is still an anarchist, technically. Like, this shouldn't yes. yeah, yeah, be yeah. the case. He should be, you know, way past it, monarchist and stuff, you know. But his. Right. I right, to say real quick your death penalty uh, view actually was my, changed my mind on the death penalty. Yeah. Um, I think it actually does make more sense. Like I like I just I kind of bounced on both sides of the death penalty issue know, over the course of a few years, but I think yours like your argument on the uh, on continuity actually made more sense. But yeah, that's gonna that makes sense to me. Gotta accept that one. Yeah, I know. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. and he, he doesn't give up on that. Man. Every time I see him on Twitter, he's like talking to this one guy named Mike Lewis. I guess he's another Catholic, but um, but when they go big, when they bicker back and forth, I just I find it a bit cringy. It's like yeah. you're such a great philosopher and theologian. Like, I mean, why why is death penalty such important to him? I just don't get it. He wrote an entire book on it. I know. Just, just stop, man. Okay, you made your point. You 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 like the death penalty. We get it, but you know. It's it, I I don't I I don't understand why it is such a strong um, position for anyone to really be that obsessive over like yeah it's it's um yeah it's yeah. I, don't, I don't get it either. I I, I it's, in some ways it comes up every Thanksgiving at my house every Thanksgiving the death penalty conversation comes up <laughs> yeah. which is very weird considering everyone there is pro death penalty somehow it's still yeah, coming yeah. up every year yeah, and I'm yeah. just like why. Like, I swear, last Thanksgiving, I brought up we had the same exact conversation in the last two years, and they didn't believe me. <laughs> like, we oh, talked, yeah. You said the exact same thing last year, Uncle Steve. You said the same exact thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was just a repeat. Okay, last question, then we can wrap it up. This is the uh, an atheist argument against the existence of God, and I'd like to hear you kind of respond to engage this argument. Okay. God knows all, but God is also unchanging. But there was a time when humans did not exist, and there may be a time when we no longer exist. All coming into existence or going out of existence mean there would be a change in God's knowledge in relation to us. 
meaning that God is changed by his knowledge of us existing or non-existing. Therefore, God is changed. Therefore, he is no longer, he is no, if he gets changed, he is not the pure act to be. Therefore, he does not exist. Mm, yeah, okay. So it goes back to like Augustine's riddle of time because about, that's, what, that's what his riddle was. Yeah. He said that if, if, God, if God exists, then what was God doing before he created us? And, that was, um, and so he kind of went through this, this entire spirit. So I guess I would just reiterate Augustine's prayer in that when you when you try to posit this, you have to remember that God is not a temporal creature. He's not mm -hmm. something within time that um, that actually goes through changes in knowledge or whatever. Well, whatever mm -hmm. they're trying to define is not God anymore. You're not talking about uh, something not, uh, outside of time. And so when you say that there was a time before man was created, there was a time in, in, in the temporal reality and man was not made, but God... Mm -hmm outside of time was always in a constant act of being. And so it's there was no time in God's reality. There is no time when you when you talk about something outside of time. So there was no time in which things were not in existence because time, as Augustine says, is the breakdown of that which used to be, which means it is no longer now, and that which will, will be, which means it is not yet, but is but but eternal but the eternal presence that we say that God is, um, is always ever present in the act of to be. And so um, time, or there was a time before things were made, that that is only true to us. That is only true the way how we measure reality, how we measure mm -hmm. But yeah. if God is pure act of to be, and we're talking about this as a necessary non-contingent state of being, which is being itself, and then there was no time in which God was not created. God was mm -hmm. always created because yeah. um, time is only relative to us. It isn't It isn't a universal principle that God is beholden to. Yeah. Speaking of always creating, um, this is an orthodox thing I heard talking to one of my orthodox friends, is that um, their take on what Jesus, when Jesus says it is finished, we're on the cross, mm -hmm. is that is in reference to finishing the act of creation because that was when we had the possibility to rise back up from our fallen human nature to being sanctified. And so that was the case. Finishing the act of creation was this was that you know finishing the Adam to the new the Adam to the new yeah. new Adam to Jesus was like the finishing of creation. Which I just think that's kind of a neat like you know puts a bow on it. You know it ties a little bow on the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, that I think that's a decent argument, but again, it gets into time and God relation to time, and that's one of the things I've. I think I've studied that more than anything else ever. Yeah. And at, now at this point, I, I understand how temporal prayer works, and that's enough mm -hmm. for me. Like, let me actually, he actually explained it in a way that made sense, where it was like, God knowing all means that if you pray today for you, God to show mercy to your grandpa, God in the moment of your grandpa's death, knowing that you would pray that prayer, would then so could, could then show mercy to him in the past, knowing your prayer in the future. Kind of saying, right, like, yeah, knowing yeah, all. And so it, that's, it's like, okay, that, that's enough for me to understand how pray, temporal prayer works and how the Eucharist works. That's enough for me. I don't have to gauge this anymore. A prayer makes sense. I'm good. I don't need to do I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's definitely something. If I ever get to the, you know, the time, I would love to go back and actually try to, you know, Aquinas only writes about God's relation to time, maybe what, twice, I think. And they assume, once in the same once in the Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't tackle it as much as, um, yeah. As I would and, say, Augustine does. Yeah, for my reading of it, it sounds like his his view would be more of a um, like time is related to perception, as yes. in we only see the present because all we can see is the present. So to us, 
the past is non-existent and the future is not exist well the present exists god yeah. being outside sees all and present is all at the same time so he sees all but until time is not weird it's perception based and it's just like an arbitrary sync like I, that's just my understanding yeah. if i read it which i think that makes sense to me but then it's like well, and then what is the true one? Is there, you know, is, is all perception ever true? Is God's perception ever true? Was it just a subjective thing? Is time yeah, subjective yeah. now? And then just, again, it gets more weird when he's sort of like gravity and gravity yeah, affects yeah. time. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm done. Yeah, t- time is a, probably the most difficult concept I think that we have because we all we all understand it to be real because we see sequences of change. And so mm-hmm. sense of sequences of change, we, we do experience time. And we, we can't just call it illusory because it is real, at least manifested through us. But there's this reality just end with us and, and i think that that's really what the what both augustine and aquinas are saying they're saying yes the reality of time ends with us it isn't that's an illusion but it is that we partake in this construct of time that god has created for us because that, that is the way human consciousness um understands it, it, it's through progress it is through um seeing sequences of change um constantly happening so it's it, so it's real but it's only real from our minds, but if you talk about being itself, what does it mean to be? It, it, it is beyond even the temporal sense. So God is ever present. And that, that's kind yeah. of the idea that, that it is a constant ever presence um, and that there is no there is no time T in which God just put things in motion, which it just always yeah. was. Yeah. Time. It- <laughs> Yeah. Twin <laughs> Horn and Jimmy Aiken are doing a debate on the uh, Kalam cosmological argument soon. Oh wow! Okay. And that's going to be just because they both take opposite ends of that. One, the Trent goes with Bonaventure's view of time that oh, they, cool. you, you have to know. You, like the past had to have a beginning point because you can't have an eternal past because you know it'd be time. If there was an eternal past, then the previous day had to just for the previous day, the previous day, and so on. And how do we get to now? Yeah. What Jimmy Higgins knows the opposite. Like, well, God could metaphysically create an infinite past if he wanted to. Right. And so I. I was very like obsessed with like how that Barnabas was time sync until Bo- uh, Bodes Bokokov explained to me like well technically by Zeno's paradox in between two seconds uh, tempo event A and tempo event B of five minutes you have the half and the half and the half and the half and again so how do you move through time at all Caleb but I'm like you're right that is dumb I'm just gonna accept that I do and move on yeah <laughs> I'm just gonna accept that I do and I'm gonna move on from that one yes, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know how to answer that yeah it's. Yeah, that, that might be the most uh, – that, that's probably the, of all the debates he's doing, Sue, that's like the most one I'm, the one I'm most excited for because I, I love both those guys, and the time that's stuff it. of the Kalam is going to be very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Great. But, um, yeah, so thank you for coming on to explain proofs for existence of God. Is there any final thoughts or comments you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I think this was, this was really fun. It was a great episode. I um, yeah, I hope people get get a lot out of it. But, um, but yeah. I, I do think that sometimes in order to, to comprehend it, like I said in the beginning, we just kind of have to take a step back and remember language. Mm-hmm. I think, I think if, if, we don't re, if we don't grasp that, we're not going to grasp some of these arguments. We have to understand, yeah. like, what are we doing when we speak? What are we doing when, we are, when we're saying certain meanings of terms? And, and once you do, I think then things could fall into place a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, in case you didn't notice, we had changed the name from Austriotomism because Austriotomism implies Austrianism, which implies liberalism. So now we are another Catholic podcast. Um, everything's sort of the mm-hmm. same. You follow us, and the Substack is now called another Catholic Substack. So if you recognize this new photo, recognize this new saying, that's because that's what we are now. Just roll with it. Um, yeah, uh, I'm having Hazlitt on next week to do uh, integralism, and I'm having Bo uh, Connor on for. 
how to destroy Western civilization and other ideas from the best by Peter Queef. So make nice. sure you guys subscribe and follow. You don't want to miss it. Uh, otherwise, have a good night. God bless.